You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, it's America's talk radio show about opera. It's Opera Box Score. I'm George Cedarquist, joined this week by Oliver Camacho and Weston Williams. All right, in this episode, we go inside the huddle with composer Justine Chen, whose The Life and Deaths of Alan Turing, with a libretto by David Simpatico, gets its world premiere next week, right here in Chicago. And then Apple Music takes a bite out of the classical market, plus the two-minute drill. The BBC is rolling out its irreversible, catastrophically damaging plans for classical music. Otherwise, things are okay. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast on Stitcher and Spotify. Click follow. Hey, Apple Podcasts. Saw what I did there. Hit the plus sign. Send us that voice memo. Email us your hot takes. OperaBoxScore at gmail.com. You're going to get the OBS Beer Coaster. You're going to get the OBS, the Pelpin. One of these days, I'm going to make those stickers. I swear to God, Oliver, I'm going to do it. <laughs> did you watch the Oscars, young man? I did. Um, and it was very emotional. Uh, Ki Hui Kwan and Michelle Yeoh winning for Everything Everywhere All at Once. Both of them made me cry. I thought the Daniels were always so um, just what, what they said was so sincere and like thanking their teachers and thanking their families. And I just it was like the first time. In a while, I felt like people who gave speeches were um, sincerely happy to have been to have won. And, you know, we've had these winners in the past, recent past, who it's like it was, of course, they were going to win. And right. there's like they take the opportunity to do like something political or to like say, you know, um, to for some other they, they use the, the speech for as a platform for something else, which is right fine because you knew you were going to win you prepared that but it's nice to actually see people happy <laughs> and i thought that the movie uh everything everywhere at once i never thought it would be an oscar candidate really because it's so specific and it's so weird there's like butt plugs in it it's like about okay. the Asi it's about the asian um experience like having an asian parent hmm. which is like a real specific thing i think some people can relate to it but there's some highly specific things to being uh, you know, first generation Asian American uh, in that movie that I was surprised were, um, you know, universal in the end. What a great recommendation. As usual, I've seen none of the movies at the Oscars. This is the first year that my children actually took an interest in the Oscars. And, and they they actually watched, you know, some before bedtime, I think, so they could talk to their friends at school the next day. I did see Jamie Lee Curtis's acceptance speech, which was lovely. And when they all sang happy birthday to one of the members on the team. Weston, did you watch the Oscars? I did. And as a matter of fact, when I was watching specifically for Everything Everywhere all at once, when they were shouting out uh, their teachers, I recognized a couple of the names and then found out <laughs> that one of the director writers actually went to my high school about six years before I did. And uh, that was a, that was a real trip. Uh, so basically, uh, I need I need to get working on a screenplay because I'm behind, guys. Let me tell you. Well, you can't do it while we're taping. Let's talk <laughs> some opera. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. Justine Chen and David Simpatico's The Life and Deaths of Alan Turing is an evening-length opera inspired by the life of the groundbreaking computer scientist Alan Turing. It was commissioned by American Lyric Theater in 2012 to commemorate the Turing Centennial. It was part of the New Works Showcase at Opera America in 2017, and it was workshopped right here at Chicago Opera Theater in 2019. It returns to Chicago Opera Theater in its world premiere production later this month. We are thrilled to talk to Justine Chen, but before we do, let's listen to a little bit of her music. This is uh, from her song cycled New York Scenes. Says we're going to hear bass Matt Baylor and pianist Edward Laurel. Music by Justine Chen. Barkey, thank you. Smile, sip. Smile, wink. What was that? What a look. Still quite cute. And we're. Try. Smile, Just a little bit of Justine Chen's New York Scenes. We heard the internal monologue drinking song performed by Matt Bowler and pianist Edward Laurel. 
And we don't unfortunately have a recording of the life and deaths of Alan Turing because it hasn't been really performed yet, <laughs> the real thing. And I think that we will have a recording someday because uh, it is already, from what I understand, a, such a special piece. I saw the workshop and I loved it. And we're going to get the full on world premiere later on this month, uh, the life and deaths of Alan Turing with the libretto by David Simpatico and composed by Justine Chen, who's our guest on Opera Box Score. Welcome. Thank you so much. Thank you so, so much for having me. Well, um, Weston Williams and I both went to the uh, workshop and we were equally moved by it. I was moved, I think, mainly because of the subject matter, but also by the music. And Weston is our resident new music guy and he was really into the sound of the show. Um, before we begin talking about the sound of the show, can you tell us a little bit about how you, as an Asian woman, relate to the subject matter, which is about math <laughs> and, <laughs> and discrimination? Yeah, well, um, originally when uh, David Simpatico and I were talking about this opera, he, he is a proud gay man and he has a dear husband for many years and um, he really wanted to bring Alan Turing, the hero, to the forefront of um, our cultural uh, mindset. Uh, when we first started it in 2012, um, the Benedict Cumberbatch movie hadn't come out yet. So it, he, his name uh, was unfamiliar to anyone who wasn't a mathematician or computer scientist. But whenever I talk to a computer scientist or a mathematician, oh, Alan Turing, they go on and on about him. Um, so we knew about his uh, his brilliance and saving the war and this code breaking skills. Uh, and then we also knew that he was he was um, convicted of gross indecency, which is the crime of homosexuality. And it was always David's point to um, bring forward the injustice of it all. And I agreed that it was terribly unjust. But I also thought that what was most interesting about this story for me was number one, the discrimination, which is something that is rarely a subject of an opera, uh, but it's a, something a, difficult to display, to, to put on display, but also something that I really wanted to, to try out myself. Um, and then also, uh, the other thing that was important to me was that the, his society was trying to help him. They really thought what they were doing was the best thing. And I did not want to by have- chemi By chemically castrating him? Yeah, well, <laughs> by saying, okay, we're going to cure you. They, I mean, they really thought it was, there's there were people, they, they weren't doing it because they were trying to be evil. They thought it was the right thing. And I think that it was, I mean, I, I don't think it was the right thing, but I think- People don't try to do the wrong thing, you know, generally. And I think that that is the the thing that I wanted to de depict, that people really thought they were doing the right thing. I think it's really an, an interesting dynamic because otherwise it's hard. I think they're such easy targets. You know, of course, we're so smart. We know that it was wrong, but I think they they didn't they didn't think it was wrong. And so that's why they did it. Well, I think you're being generous. I mean, we're we're having <laughs> we're, we're having similar issues right now with uh, you know transgenderism is the mm, word that they're using, you know, right. and people thinking that we need to just like uh, make it impossible for people to get gender affirming care because it's what's best for them, you know. Hmm. Um, right. But anyway, the moving on. <laughs> <laughs> so we know now that the this the topic is about this brilliant mind who possibly was on the autism spectrum, who was an out homosexual, who was chemically castrated, but was also a war hero. He was all these things. He was the father of modern computing with all of that in mind. And also there's a love story, which is a heart, heart, heartbreaking story. I mean, this is, I remember sitting in this workshop performance and uh, we have this duet that um, I think is just a fine, fine piece of music. It really, oh, it went right to the heart. Um, so there's this, there's this aspect of of this uh, of your opera. Um, where do you begin? Do you begin with the characters? Do you begin with your Justine Chen sound world? Do you begin with text? Like, what is the process? Um, for 
for opera, I always start with the libretto. I always start with being sure that I understand the characters and that I understand their motivations, um, that I know who they are, and then I know where they are and where they're heading. I think those are all really important for me to gather together. Then I can start kind of figuring out the perspective that I'm bringing. So who, you know, when, when, when you're listening to an opera, you're listening to someone's opinion of whatever is happening, right? Yeah. And you're getting the emotional reaction of whoever the composer decides you're going to get the emotional reaction from. So I think it's zeroing in on the mood um, and the environment that is being set up. So David Simpatico actually has these amazing, amazing stage settings. Uh, and uh, for the first, so I've, I've written several libretti on my own. I've worked with other librettists. He's the only one who puts in tons of rain. I feel like there's lots of weather in his mm. operas, but I never considered before, but he's just, that's kind of his brain. And so that is really interesting for me to depict. Again, it's like something that usually I have or something in kind of an enclosed space. It's not yeah. outdoors, but he has this wild imagination is putting, you know, there's no limit for him. And so a lot of it is just getting the characters, getting the, the dynamics and getting the dramatic uh, impetus and then figuring out what the best way is to depict, how the best way is to depict that. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I asked the question because, I mean, obviously one does start with the words, um, but, you know, we are living in this time now where there isn't really a signature sound of our time. Like there's mm -hmm. so many different right. ways of writing mm -hmm. operas. Like if you were to like ask the same question to composers in the 19th century, it's like, well, it's, it's bel canto. So you, see, <laughs> you start with the melody, you know, try, to, try to grab some words onto this melody. <laughs> uh, well, something that's uh, something else that's interesting is, um, you know, with, with again, with David's um, brilliant libretto, there are moments that kind of just reach out to me that mm. say, set me, set me. And I want to figure out the best way to make those things happen. So the I, the chorus moments, you know, I think a lot of those were just really exciting for me to, uh, I mean, we, to, to figure out the chat room sound um, yeah. and to know how to depict the, that kind of inf um, information and sound world. I've, I'm so glad you brought that up because that's something I want to talk about for the audience to, to anticipate. I mean, you have composed for the crossing, which is maybe the most technically uh, skillful, or at least musically skillful choir in the U.S. Um, so I don't know if you are assuming that all choirs can sing. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I'll tell you the um, the first time I ever heard the crossing, I was performing with them. I'm a violinist, and it was um, a James Dillon piece called Nine Rivers, which is a like a three night extravaganza. I was performing with Ice Inter. National Contemporary Ensemble, mm -hmm. and it was um, it was maybe the U.S. premiere of this piece it was such an unwieldy piece. I was one of six violinists, and then the crossing was part of maybe the third evening of performances. And they the sounds they were making, I was like, "Wow, this is so great!" And so that was the first time I heard them. That was the first time I had met Donald, um, and I remember approaching and like trying to make a connection. And I think you know, in the end, I. I felt like I didn't make a connection with him. But then um, years later, I realized that hearing them, that was the inspiration of my my course writing. I think that their, um, I guess their technical brilliance, but also, yeah. you know, there's something that was really phenomenal about Donald, because he was our chorus master. It turned out in 2019 in that reading that was like everything at had Chicago come Opera full, Theater, yeah. at Chicago Opera Theater, everything had come full circle. Um, Lydia was like, oh, I have a chance of, you know, possibly getting a really great chorus master. And I found out it was Donald Nelly. I was like, oh, my gosh, <laughs> that's like, you know, so great. And the first time we, we heard the chorus, I, I was like, oh, my gosh, I turned on my phone and I started recording because I was like, it'll never sound this good again. I just couldn't imagine. <laughs> it was so it was it blew my mind. I still listen to it because it still like just sends chills up my just out of curiosity. Um, 
do we have offstage chorus or are they on stage? They're on stage. Yeah. So they I, have to be, they have to be memorized. Well, this. I don't know if I'm supposed to tell you. Okay. No, okay. I'll, I'll let, let it be a surprise. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, this is, uh, this is something I, I was told later, <laughs> I was told later that, uh, choruses are not traditionally supposed to do work outside of rehearsals. And mm -hmm. I don't know if that's union rules in New York or if that if that's everywhere. Mm -hmm. um, but this course is is quite difficult. And so the they're not going to be off book for most of it. But okay. the there are there are parts that they will be off books. Like you remember the Ren's Crips, like the Andrew sister stuff or mm -hmm. like the schoolboy stuff. That's yeah. going to be staged. But okay. yeah. But the stuff that's like computer sounds. <laughs> computer -y sounds, yeah. That's not that's not yeah. Um, but yeah, what I what I realized also, because I, I just had that sound in my head, is that he uh, Donald Nelly is a, a whiz at understanding the style that I'm going for. So this is something that you brought up too, about the compositional style being so varied now, mm -hmm. right? And so actually the opera has lots of different kind of musical styles in it. And he always kind of knew exactly the style I was heading for mm -hmm. with whatever I was doing. And the very first time I heard it, right? I was so, so excited and I played it for a friend, Matt Bowler actually. Um, <laughs> and he said, oh, you found a chorus that doesn't do vibrato. <laughs> I was like, oh, that's it. That's yeah. it. That's a thing that like I was like I'm not a singer though. No. So I think I'm less attentive to those things, but yeah. I'm like it's I don't know what's wrong. I don't I'm not sure what's wrong. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, he figured out and then everything the style, he always figured out the style of it, how things are supposed to move and yeah. that's that's the brilliance of it. Well, you've sort of already touched on my next question for you is how this work has evolved from its commission by American Lyric Theater and its Presentation, I guess it would be a concert at Opera America in 2017. 17, yeah, 2017. Yeah. And then the 2019 COT workshop and to where we are now. I mean, you don't have to give me the whole thing, obviously. I'm sure it's a lot, but like, what are some of the broad strokes about what has happened to the piece and what you've learned? So um, this uh, this has been a, a long process. Uh, we started in 2012, American Lyric Theater, um, remarkably mentored us these last 10 years through multiple piano vocal workshops and then you know partnered with cot for the orchestral um workshop what what we were working on so this is there's no story um that we're mimicking we're not it's not based on a play it's not based on a book it's just straight from david's brain david's wild imagination and so we spent a lot of time kind of making sure that everything that was important to the scene, each scene, we have seven, seven discrete memories from Alan's life, um, plays out in, in the most efficient way possible and is, has the least amount of com complications um, so the audience can follow what's happening, uh, especially because there is no actual um, play that we're following. <clears throat> And there are a lot of very, very complicated scenes, like um, the scene at Bletchley Park, which is where uh, Alan worked with his codebreakers to uh, break the Enigma machine code, which is a German um, uh, crypt, uh, cryptology, the, the German like cryptology, yeah, yeah. yeah crypto codes, um, yeah, machine, for, crypto codes, yeah. 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 Um, but they worked uh, round the clock to to break to receive messages and break the like understand decode the Nazi messages to find yeah. out where encrypted where messaging going. machine exactly <laughs> <laughs> and cryptor yeah that's 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 where my understanding of math and ends <laughs> yeah and then the ending is a little bit complicated too and so we just wanted to make sure the shapes of the scenes made sense going uh, from and the shapes and then the um, the dynamics between the characters were clear and made sense and moved forward and in, uh, in dramatically um, so that the shape of the opera feels uh, is it's kind of kind of balloons, you know, towards the end, even. Yeah. So we wanted to make sure that all of those things were uh, moving the again, like in a in a good shape and a good with good pacing. Tell me the Mark Adamo story that you were about to tell me. 
Oh, um, so at the very, very beginning stages, uh, one of the first things that we we do or, or that ALT taught us is uh, we put a treatment together. We, the librettist puts the treatment together, uh, basically outlining what each scene is gonna, what's gonna happen in each scene. And um, there was, actually the, the opera is very male heavy. There are a lot of men in it. There's five, there are five male principles and two female principles. Um, and one of the female principles is um, is uh, Ellen Turing's fiance for a while. Her name is Joan Clark. They were co co-workers at in Hut Eight. They were best friends, and they were engaged. And uh, one of the scenes that David really wanted to put in was a breakup scene between Alan and Joan. And I, I was like, oh, I don't, I don't think so. I don't think we, who cares? Who cares? Because we all know he's gay and we need to be on the side of the person who is being broken up with. <laughs> and we are coming into the opera knowing he's gay. It just, she just seems kind of foolish. Um, and then we brought it to Mark Adamo, brilliant, brilliant Mark Adamo. And he looked at it and that scene, he said, you know, this is a really, really interesting scene because this is how so many, so many of us survived is by, yeah, as just by uh, going into a marriage. So that that was a, a method of survival. And that really spoke to my soul. I was really, mm. I was so, it was so moving to even thinking about it now. So it's such a heartbreaking moment for both of them. Um, and instead of just being heartbreaking for Joan because she was rejected, but it was more about for me, like I, he, Mark helped me realize the the depth of of the moment. Mm. Well, we have just a few minutes left, and I would love to talk about Chicago Opera, this particular Chicago Opera Theater world premiere. Uh, Lydia Yankovska has been our guest on Opera Box Go Before, and now that she's been in Chicago for a few years. Um, I feel like Chicago is so lucky that we we got her just as her star was ascending, and I don't know how we're keeping her. Yeah. Here. Oh, I'm. I I feel the same way. I so I first met her in 2015, and uh, the first time I met her, we went into this rehearsal together, and I think the chorus had been rehearsing, but it was like kind of spotty and not everyone was there all the time and it it didn't I could it was really hard to tell that they had been working for some time and then she just started working with them and I she it felt like she was a sorceress she just got them sounding so amazing by the end of the rehearsal it was it really blew my mind how well she just understands singers and can run a rehearsal um and I've been working with her for so long I I have to keep reminding myself that not every conductor is this brilliant genius who understands my every musical internal thought like she'll she'll be talking to the singers no this is where alan feels uncomfortable or this is where alan feels like he's just really deep in his love of numbers right now and i i, I did not write this is where he's comfortable this is where he's uncomfortable i mean not in words but in my music and she just feels it so naturally and i again i have to be grateful i have to remember to be grateful because I have I can't I can't forget how special it is that she is that connected to my music. So I'm mm. I'm very very I'm so so glad that she's also part of COT because she helped bring me to COT. I'm and I'm so I'm having such an amazing time. And the star of the show, Jonathan Mickey, was also <laughs> the same uh, baritone who sang in the workshop that I saw a few years ago. Um, Wow. I mean, he, I also feel yeah. like he gets your music. Really well. Oh my God. Yeah. So he, he was like a huge surprise to us actually. Cause he lives in Leipzig. He he's, uh, he's doing a fest there or he's been doing a fest there for many, many years. Um, and we actually, um, chose a, so this was for the 2000, I think our second workshop, oh, the workshop that we worked with Lydia first on, um, we had auditioned singers. We chose one singer, but he was part of a, he was, like in the contract, he was still at school and they wouldn't let him out. And so then his agent kind of just floated the the opera around. And then Jonathan Mickey saw it and he said he wanted to um he wanted he wanted to see lobby for it. And um and then I, you know, I looked at his website and 
the the things that are most important to me is that um, singers can act really well and their diction is good. Mm -hmm. uh, and I couldn't really tell that from what I saw on his uh, the the clip that I saw. Um, but I was like, okay. And then and they came. <laughs> And he was phenomenal. I did totally wouldn't have been able to predict that. But this is like, I think, you know, auditions, I think, are very imperfect because all you yeah. know is that one performance, that one time, you yeah. don't know how they take feedback. You don't know how they will morph, you know, yeah. with whatever. And it was really, it was, we are so, 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 so fortunate that John, Jonathan Mickey was there from such an early stage and that he has continued to be part of it. And I'm, I don't, I think, you know, he doesn't complain. I have to say he doesn't complain, but he's in every scene. I don't know how it feels. You know, I'm not a singer. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure he will never ever tell me if it is difficult, but he makes it look really easy. And he mm. is a phenomenal actor, deeply, deeply intelligent, and again, so super courageous because it's a very awkward character we're putting on stage. You know, I think all of us, we relate to that awkwardness, but not every singer has the courage to go up there and do it. And we're just, I'm just so grateful that he's willing to go there for us. Well, the life and deaths of Alan Turing uh, tackles so many topics and I am confident is going to enter into the repertoire uh, based on what I remember from a few years ago. I cannot wait to see it uh, in its world premiere later this month. Justine Chen, thank you so much for being a guest on Opera Box Score. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Thank you to Chicago Opera Theater for giving me access to Justine Chen. The Life and Deaths of Alan Turing opens on March 23rd at Chicago Opera Theater. Yeah, you got something to say? Then yeah, all right, you can say something. This is Listener Mailbag. Quick little Listener Mailbag. Amy in New York City says, Oh, thank heavens that we were not the only ones who hated the Mets production of The Hours. As long as I am here, Lohengrin was just super, and such a thrill that Christine Gerke responded to my tweets during intermission. Thanks, Amy. <laughs> That's quite a <laughs> Listener Mail grab bag. I think hate was a strong word. I don't remember saying that I hated the production. I just thought that it was a mismatch. Um, for <laughs> no, no, what's his name? Uh, D D Fellum, he Fellum just loathed it, you know. Fellum he just McDermott hated it with every fiber of his being. Just created a show that was visually very busy. Uh, when the story was very intimate, I think it needed more quiet moments. Um, vi visually quiet moments. Uh, I really loved Kelly O'Connor. Is that her name? Yeah. Uh, Kelly O'Hara. Kelly O'Hara. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I'm I really glad loved... you were paying attention. <laughs> uh, I just. I love Kelly O'Hara. Um, and um, dude. I thought, I mean, I actually enjoyed the music quite a bit, so I wouldn't say I hated it. Um, but yeah, I, I had problems with the production. <laughs> and uh, I, I actually, I think it's great that Christine Gerke is, um, you know, thrilling to you. I think that that role That's of Ortrude is like a great, like, scene stealer, you know. For well, the rest of the cast. she said it was thrilling that Christine Gerke was responding to Amy's tweets. Oh, yes, yes. Well, Christine Which, Gerke uh, is... And honestly, Amy, uh, we should just hire you to take over Opera Box Course Twitter page from me because <laughs> you're getting that engagement, and I am not. So you're doing great, Amy. Thank you so much for your listener mailbag submission. Chalk Talk on Opera Box Score. So the news came out last week that Apple is launching a new standalone app for classical music dubbed Apple Music Classical. The app will have over 5 million classical tracks. Whoa. Everything from new releases to celebrated masterpieces. And the search functionality is supposed to be quite good with the ability to uh, search by composer, conductor, and catalog number to find specific specific recordings we have more uh details about how this app is going to work but um i'll just start by saying i want to talk about this because i think the hardest thing about uh streaming classical music right now is mm. um just the so much data about right. so much text uh that is affiliated with each track mm -hmm. like you get you get yourself your marriage of figaro and you know it's a four-act opera 
and you'll find on Spotify that at first it says Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. So you already have used up like 30 characters right there. Right. And then <laughs> Le Nozze di Figaro, okay. Then Act 1. Then Scene whatever. Then, then the and K the- number. <laughs> yeah. And then you finally get to the track that you're looking for, Devieni Non Tardar, you know, before you, that's even before you get the artist listing. And who knows how it's going to be arranged. They might even put the artist before they put, they might put them like in the same line as Mozart. It's like, you've got your Mozart, you've got your Carrie Deconomy, you've got your George Schulte, but what am I listening to, you know? So um, I'm Poor curious Oliver. to see, it's really frustrating. I'm curious to see how this is going to do. Adagio is another streaming service uh, that I think is, failure to launch but it's it's existing now but i've heard that adagio is a much better uh platform than spotify okay so weston you're, you're the tech head here how does this platform work exactly what's the functionality of it that is so unusual and that is going to make oliver happy <laughs> there's a few things i mean uh what oliver was saying is true obviously the search is the i think the big uh the big you know uh, thing here. I would also add in addition to the arranging, the spelling is huge too. If you've ever tried to listen to anything by a Russian composer, you know, you've got like 50 different spellings of Tchaikovsky. You know what I mean? Uh, Spell Dvorak uh, with all the correct diacritics. The The amount of times I've had to like copy and paste individual Cyrillic letters in order to find an obscure Alfred Schnitka piece. It happens a lot to me specifically. So I hope this solves my problem. Um, But this is so basically the reason Apple is doing this is because they acquired a, uh, a platform called Prime Phonic. And from what I understand, they are building the search functions and how Prime Phonic is put together into their previously existing Apple Music framework. And they're also using their clout as Apple to, I believe, bring in some um, some heavy hitters from the classical music world. I think it, there was a post on Instagram of the Met uh, talking about this announcement and, it, and the way they phrased it sounded like they had an exclusive deal with Apple mm-hmm. to get some of their operas streaming on there. Okay. Um, I will say a lot of this is kind of, you know, guesswork that we don't we don't have the app yet. We have the specs for Prime Phonic. Um, one of the cool things that Prime Phonic does or or did, um, which I hope Apple carries forward, is uh, in how they actually pay the artists who make the music um, because of the way uh, because of the way, you know, classical music works uh, versus, you know, the typical streaming uh, a, a pop music song, for example, you might have like a three minute pop song um, that plays through and the artist gets 10 cents or whatever. Um, right. That's actually way too high. Uh, but they get 10 cents for one one stream. Right. Uh, whereas, say you have an older like Beethoven recording, which is the entire symphony, like uh, symphony number no. nine, like it's like an hour and something. Uh, if it's on one track that artist would get 10 cents, right? So what Prime Phonic did and what I hope what I hope Apple is incorporating into it is uh changing the pay the pay based on the amount of time you listen, not the number of plays. So that means that the uh the pay is hopefully more equitable to the to the amount uh to classical music uh compositions that aren't necessarily built for the three the the three minute pop music uh track length you know Mm -hmm, Uh, that's pretty interesting uh apple music also is very proud of their sort of proprietary uh response to like dolby audio and stuff like that with with their spatial audio which is really just kind of a fancy way of saying that they have like managed to like fine-tune all the frequencies Mm -hmm. uh in their airpods uh in order to make it sound to have a lot more uh a more impression of space and directionality with your with your headphones that you're listening on which is something that they've been really trying to push recently uh with a a lot of their pop music as well as classical music which could be really interesting um and the the music app for apple has also been trying some new things recently too like giving you the ability to like cut out uh, vocals and stuff like that. I don't know if that's going to be something with the classical app. So w- um, without the segment becoming an ad for Apple, Weston, right, right, is right. this something you're going to use? That's a good question. And I've been thinking about this a lot because this is not the first time something like this has been attempted. 
Uh, I, I think it's no secret that classical music has always been very neglected since the CD era. Um, once once things made the jump to non-physical formats, classical music has always been kind of the last afterthought of a lot of these major companies. I think because Apple is so huge, um, there might actually be like a, a really big opportunity for them to corner the market. But that brings mm-hmm. with them... Uh, brings with it all the the pitfalls of you know streaming music. You know, there's a uh, my my big concern. I mentioned this before is that you know ever since we've left uh, the physical formats behind, you have that problem of oh this large company can just decide one day that no you can't listen to this this piece of music anymore. You know, right. especially right. a problem yeah, that's what a monopoly. You want it to be competitive is what you're saying. Yeah, well, not not even that, but like think about like you know uh, if if an artist says something controversial or like you know people hear about Wagner and they cancel him again, you know Apple could just pull that and instead of having your your albums to listen to, you know um, physically, you have you have it's all under the control of Apple, which can be a bit of a concern for a lot of people. Um, I mean, that's, that's the only reason the CD industry is still around is because of classical music, honestly. Right. Um, right. Yeah. and as we know, um, uh, there was just news this past week, uh, that, uh, uh, that vinyl sales have actually outstripped CDs for the first time since 1987. So oh maybe Lord. now is the time. Uh, yeah, wow. maybe now is the time, uh, to, to jump in and, and, if you do want to have a classical music streaming service, um, there are so many ways that people listen to classical music that is different from the way that pe- people listen to more commercially viable music. Um, and I think that it. I'm certainly interested to see what they come up with. It feels a little dystopian sometimes. Uh, and uh, the little hipster part of me is like, you know, doesn't want to do it. But at the same time, I think it is an important step forward to introduce people to it. I will say this is going to be uh, available at an extra price tag uh, over what you're already paying for Apple Music, which I think is a problem. No, for no, 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 no. It's it's part no, no, no. of Apple. It's Apple Music. It's it's a dollar more than Spotify, but it is still part of your Apple Music subscription. So but you better fact check that, man. Hey, look, m- music should not be free. C- can we all agree on that? I think it should be free, but that's a different conversation. Well, okay, so clearly we're gonna have to disagree, agree <laughs> about that. And needless to say, this is only on the um, Apple operating system. By the way, it's not on Android. Presumably. Yes, yes, yes. Not yet. Um, and you were right, Oliver. It, it is. It is. Uh, it is uh, the same. There we go. It's the kind of fact check so, yeah. I like on this show. Yeah, hey, look, ten, it's it's ten dollars, ten dollars and ninety nine cents a month for individual. If you're a student, you get a discount. If you're a family, you can bundle it, but it's basically ten ninety nine a person. So. Okay. Well, thanks for the paid promotion for Apple Music yeah. Classical. <laughs> Look, send us a voice. I did memo use the word dystopian a couple of times. So email us your hot takes. Let us know if this is something that you've you're going to be using and what you think of it. Opera Box Score at gmail.com. You're going to get all the OBS merch right now. You're going to get the two minute drill. This just in, the two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Opera Land this week. Lyric Opera of Chicago has announced six canonical operas, one Requiem, and an evening with Audrey McDonald as its (laughs) 2023-24 season. Details after the drill. Washington National Opera has also announced its lineup for the 23-24 season. It includes a world premiere by Janine Tesori, which will be a star vehicle for Emily D'Angelo, Romeo and Juliet with friend of the show Duke Kim, Songbird, an adaptation of Offenbach's La Pericole, and Francesca Zambello's production of Turandot. The BBC has announced that it will cut 20% of salaried jobs in the station's orchestras. The first casualty of the move is the BBC Singers, the UK's only full-time choir, which won't even receive a send-off at the upcoming proms when it is disbanded. Chief Content Officer Charlotte Moore said the decision was difficult, but called the overall strategy for the organization uh, ambitious and good for the sector and the audiences that love classical music. Hmm. Silvia Colasanti will become the first woman composer to have an opera produced at La Scala. 
Her opera for young audiences called Anna A is about Anna Akhmatova, the Russian poet persecuted by the Stalinist regime, premiering in 2025. During a brief ceremony after a performance of Tomas's Amlet at the Paris Opera, Lisette Oropesa was awarded the Chevalier de l'Ordre des Arts et des Lettres by the French Minister of wow. Culture. Oropesa <laughs> has always had a special relationship with the house where she made her debut as Constanza in Abduction from the Seraglio in 2015 and has regularly returned in roles like Gilda, Adina, Rosina, and Marguerite de Valois in Les Huguenots. Wow, he stuck the landing. Baritone ah. Justin Austin has been named this year's Marian Anderson Vocal Award winner. Prior recipients include friend of the show Frederick Ballantyne, friend of the show Will Liverman, friend of the show Solomon Howard, friend of the show Ryan Speedo Green, friend of the show Lawrence Brownlee, friend of the show Janai Brugger. And we want to be friends of the show, Denise Graves, Eric Owens, Janae Bridges, and John Holiday. <laughs> we'll get them eventually. Yes. Two tenors are joint winners of the Thomas Kvasthoff's Das Lied competition. Taekwon Yoon of South Korea is currently an ensemble member at Bon Opera. British tenor Lawrence Kilsby has been sweeping the competition circuit with wins at Wigmore Hall and the Chesty competition at Innsbruck. Both young artists take away a cash prize of 12,500 euros each. In trade news, director and administrator Onofrio Kutaya has been appointed to manage Maggio Musicale Fiorentino, filling in for Alexander Pereira, who has been investig who is being inve tripped up on the English word, who is being investigated <laughs> for credit card fraud. British conductor Daniel Harding has been named the music director of the orchestra and chorus of the Accademia Nazionale di Santa Cecilia. He'll take over from Antonio Papano next fall. Exit stage right, British conductor Kenneth Montgomery has died at the age of 79. Montgomery served as the music director of the Glyndebourne Touring Opera in 1975 and 76, and was a frequent, frequent guest conductor at Santa Fe Opera, briefly becoming its interim music director in 2007. Montgomery was also the director of Dutch Radio Choir and director of opera studies at The Hague. And on this day, March 13th, five notable premieres, George Friedrich Handel's Oratorio, Joseph and His Brethren, uh, in 1744. Uh, Luigi Cherubini's Midday in 1797. Gaetano Donizetti's Ugo, Conte di Parigi, which was actually premiered in Milan, not Parigi, in 1832. In 1861, the Paris version of Wagner's Tannhäuser. And in 1998, Little Women with Libretto and Music by Marc Adamo, premiering at Houston Opera. In 1894, Bruno Walter made his conducting debut at Cologne. In eight, oh, we have some birthdays now. Uh, in 1813, tenor Carlo Guasco, who was teacher of Giovanni de Negri, who created uh, a number of Verdi tenor roles. In 1860, uh, Hugo Wolf, known mostly to singers as a composer of art song. In 1883, pianist and operetta composer Enrico Toselli was born. In 1913, the Swiss tenor of Italian descent, Libro de Luca, was born. In 19, we don't know what, mezzo-soprano Rosalind Elias was born in Massachusetts. In 1932, baritone William Murray was born in Schenectady. And happy birthday to Puerto Rican soprano Julia McGinnis, who was born this day, March 13th, in 1949. And that is your two-minute drill. Just a little bit of Julie McGinnis singing the Segedia from Carmen uh, in a film that used to be the kind of the uh, prototype or the, uh, what do you call it? the archetype? What do you call it? the or, the or text? It was the film opera uh, of Carmen with none other than Ruggiero Raimondi as Escamillo and Faith Esham as Micaela and some tenor <laughs> singing <laughs> Don Jose. Um, I remember seeing this film in, I guess, high school, college and thinking like, ah, oh, opera is so cool. And it is. Yeah. Opera is cool. Lyric Opera of Chicago thinks opera is cool. We should we should start with the lyric announcement now. Matt Cummings pointed out the 
number of productions that Lyric had done this current season and, and compared that to what is coming up. So just to kind of put this in context, the 22-23 season, Lyric offered five canonical operas, two world premieres, one musical with a big M and one musical with a little M. But but how does that break down, guys, in terms of what's on offer next season? Well, I'll just say that um, they, with their new music director, Enrique Mazzola, they seem to be uh, trying to do this complete Verdi thing. Uh, and we've had Ernani, we've had, um, what was the one before um, his first year? Uh, uh, Attila? Oh, no, Macbeth. Um, and then... Yeah, and then and then Attila during the COVID year, uh, so we're finally getting one. We'll talk about in a minute. We're getting Aida, which is a very opera that people want to see. <laughs> um, but um, but this year we had Ernani and Don Carlos. We had two very operas. One that people want to see. Uh, we also Ouch. had a bel, bel canto opera, La Comptoria. I think that Mazzola also is a big bel canto guy. Yeah. Uh, we had Fiddler on the Roof, which was the Barry Kosky production, which was. Um, you know, scheduled in the main season, like actually opening up the main season right next to Ernani. Uh, right. Hansel, Hansel and Gretel started the year, calendar year, and then Factotum followed shortly after that, which actually took place uh, at a different venue than Civic Opera House. Uh, right now we are in the middle of Carmen, and we'll talk about that in my bad call later on. Oh, and um, <laughs> oh, Proximity, goodness. a triptych of new operas is coming very soon. So in the new season, we... Uh, we get Flying Dutchman with Tamara Wilson uh, as Senta in the Christopher Alden production. Yes. Uh, George, anything you want to say about Christopher Alden? I mean, he's he's part of the twins, right? Christopher and David Alden. I always forget who's who. This is, I mean, this is going to be great production. <laughs> For me, it, I just love that overture. I could listen to this overture on repeat using Apple What's Music Classical. Okay, so we have another Bel Canto show, uh, Daughter of the Regiment, which is in the Lauren Pelly production which uh, Natalie Desay and Juan Diego Flores made famous in HD. Uh, that will feature friend of the show, Lawrence Brownlee, and Chevalier de les Ordres des Arts de Lettre, Lizette Orestreza, as, um, as Marie, yes. And uh, Speranza Scapucci, uh, a conductor who's not a white dude. Great. Uh, I think the most, exci- <laughs> the most exciting thing coming, well, one of the most exciting things coming next year is um, Yanufa, uh, we haven't had a Janacek opera in a minute. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and it's going to be Chicago audiences' first chance to hear Lisa Davidson, who people are saying is like a so one, in a million, one in a million voice, uh, a sound that we have not heard probably at Lyric Opera in a long time, mm-hmm. a true Wagnerian soprano with, you know, tone that just cuts over every orchestra. Uh, and as Kostelnica and Yenifa, Nina Stemma, another... Uh, great Wagnerian soprano. And this production will be directed by Klaus Gut. Anything you want to say about Klaus Gut? Well, this, this is the one to see, right? For me, this is this is the attraction. First of all, this is a very loud cast, right? It's like Nina Stemmer, more like Nina Stimmer. I cannot wait to see the Klaus Gut production. Of course, he just he just won the um, Oprah Award uh, from... Uh, Oprah Mag in, in Dortmund that we talked about on the show last week. So smart, so intelligent, stripped down, intense, cannot wait. Yeah, I'm sure he'll do a good job. Ugh, gosh. D- go away. Just, <laughs> just surrounded by them. So, um, <laughs> so uh, then we have uh, a very old Cenerentola production by Ponell, but uh, will give us a chance to hear somebody I saw over the summer at Santa Fe who I thought was fantastic. Jack Swanson as Don Romero. And the new It Girl, I've not heard her sing yet, uh, Vasilisa Berjanskaya as Cinderella. Um, and then we get Champion. So the mm-hmm, Terrence Blanchard mm-hmm. show mm-hmm. is coming to Chicago shortly after it was at the Met, just like uh, Fire Shut Up in My Bones. Maybe that's the new pattern. If the Met does it, we do it the next year. I don't know. Uh, but that's going to feature Marion Anderson Award winner Justin Austin as the young Emil and as the elder Emil, um, Eric Owens. Uh, yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Emil Griffith. Yeah, I believe so. Yeah. And uh, also in the cast is Whitney Morrison, a singer I'm a big fan of. That's going to be directed by, conducted by Enrique Mazzola. So let's see how he does with new operas. We talked about the Aida, uh, which is the Zambello production uh, starring uh, Michelle Bradley, Russell Thomas, and Jamie Barton as Amneris. It's really cool. 
the, just the the downside of the Aida. This is the production where the scenic design was done by a, a street artist who goes by the handle Retina. Just dig up the production photos. I did not find this a visually exciting landscape, and it certainly bore absolutely no resemblance to anything that happens in that story. Mozart Requiem is part of their season. I guess they're doing it twice, uh, two two concerts of Mozart Requiem. Yeah, yeah. Which I don't understand why. I I, I mean, I think it's like copying the Met. They're like, oh, they're doing uh, Verdi's Requiem. We could do a Requiem. Let's see what we have in this this closet over here. And they pulled it out. I, I, <laughs> I... I don't think it's a good house to do Mozart's Requiem in. You know, I, I don't know if they're going to do it on the on the main stage or not. And it's also not the type of show you need like amazing solos. Like you can get away with doing it with like the young artists with the Ryan Opera Center kids. You know, um, maybe that's why they're doing it to save some money. I don't know, but it's not theatrical. It's beautiful, uh, yeah. but it's it's a concert. It's not. I mean, Verdi Requiem is operatic. You know, the Mozart yeah, Requiem exactly. is. Is much more like dignified. And well, it, it doesn't classically. have to be a concert, right? Like there, obviously, a director could stage this in an exciting and inspiring way, but that's not the choice that that they made. I, I just don't know why they wouldn't leave this to the Chicago Symphony and the uh, Chicago Symphony Chorus wow. to crank out. Yeah, and then, know, an, and then an evening with opera star <laughs> <laughs> Tony Award winning. Uh, you know, triple threat, quadruple threat, mm-hmm. you know, whatever you want to yeah. call her, Audrey McDonald. I mean, I have nothing against Audrey McDonald, but you're going to use your one special concert event to showcase Audrey McDonald. Why not showcase Lisa Davidson? Why not showcase, you know, somebody else who like opera audiences really want to see? Yeah, it's it's an interesting choice. I mean, I feel like, I mean, it, it'll get, it, it, she'll get an audience, I don't know. It's not the audience they would normally try to get with with their, you know, special guest concert that they usually do. So uh, I don't know. I, I feel like a lot of it feels like uh, money driven decisions. This uh, I will say I'm excited about a lot of a lot of the season. But, you know, the, the less operas, the uh, the 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 unstaged Requiem, you know, it, it feels like they are very conscious of money right now, which, you know, I don't necessarily blame them for. But. I don't when know. You, we'll when see. you look when you look at this season, it's like an NFL team that finishes the year with a five and twelve record, right? So like you've you've had five wins, and there's probably like a big win in there for me. That would be the the Klaus Gut Yenifa is is the big win. But overall, you're at five and twelve. You were way below five hundred on this season, in my opinion. So a couple of quick hits on Washington. Um, there's a new opera being done by uh, Janine Tesori, which is great. We love that. Uh, it'll star Emily D'Angelo. It's about uh, a female F-16 fighter pilot who becomes pregnant uh, and then uh, is relegated to a trailer in Vegas to fly drones. Um, that'll be interesting. There's going to be some LED screen technology for that one, immersive, you know, new media. I would hope so, because that sounds very static to me yeah. on a stage. That sounds really exciting if you're like in real life in a plane and super static. Maybe that's the point. Great cast for Romeo and Juliet. Friend of the show, Duke Kim as Romeo and Rosa Faola as Juliet with mm-hmm, Justin mm-hmm. Austin. Uh, I forget what role the baritone sings, but, you know, there's a baritone in there somewhere. Um, <laughs> the, another Janine Tesori opera, the revival of the children's opera, The Lion, the Unicorn and Me, which mm-hmm. will feature Solomon Howard as the lion. Uh, Justin Austin, we mentioned before, will be singing the Marian Anderson Vocal Award concert. Uh, the American Opera Initiative uh, is doing a triptych of new works by Laura jo- Joban Acosta, Elizabeth Gartman, Joy Redmond, um, with librettist Sam Norman, Jose Rodriguez, and Melissa, Melissa Tian. Uh, they're adapting Offenbach's La Pericole and calling it Songbird. I think it's going to have like a jazz accordion or something like that. I'm quite sure how that's going to work out, but um, sure. Uh, and then <laughs> Turandot with uh, Christopher Tin and Susan Soon-Hey Stanton. I don't know how Christopher Tin and Susan Soon-Hey Hanton, what they have to do with Turandot. Christopher Tin, I thought, was a composer. Oh, a new ending. It's a new ending. I see. Okay. It's a new ending. <laughs> I was okay. confused. It, just to go back to Grounded, which I, I was mocking it earlier, and that was that was Bush League. I apologize. There's there's no reason to to mock this show. 
I I, I, I do want to see the, the massive LED screen technology. I note that the presenting sponsor of this production is General Dynamics, which is a well-known private defense contractor. And this oh. is perhaps one of the strangest tie-ins of That's corporate, DC, baby. corporate support and thematic material. End of play. Anyway, I'm gonna go check it out because I'm a big Emily D'Angelo fan. So should be should look be for awesome. me. Look for me in DC in October. Last call, boys, on the drill. I think that I agree with the BBC conductors when they say uh, irresistible and catastrophically damaging. Uh, uh, there, I mean. In, it, the UK is just having a time right now in terms of uh, in terms of classical music. Let me tell you what. Okay, they've been having a time uh, for about five years. Ever yeah, since Brexit. I, Don't get me started, Weston. Ever since Brexit, <laughs> it's all downhill. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a lot of outrage about uh, them just discontinuing BBC Singers, a very important organization in the yeah. musical landscape. And not even giving them a chance to finish out, you know, what is ostensibly the the finale of the season, the proms concert. So, yeah. it's, it's it's rude, and um, yeah, yeah. I'm sure we we will we can get other rage about this from other people. If you'd like to submit your rage, we'd be happy to read your rage. That, that, was, that is beautifully put. I can imagine all all my English friends and relatives saying this is very rude, and inwardly being like irate about it, but outwardly just saying like, well, I, it's quite rude, isn't it? Very stiff upper lip. Let's wrap up the show. Good call. Bad call. On Opera Box Score. Good call. Bad call. Oliver Camacho, take it away. So I went to the Prima of Carmen and shout out to the cast, which is uh, three-fourths of the principals are people of color. I mean, we got Janae Bridges, obviously, as Carmen. Golda Schultz as Michaela. Uh, our friend of the show, um, Charles Castronovo, as uh, Don Jose. And like I think most people don't know that he's a stealth Ecuadorian. Uh, there was a Russian <laughs> as, um, as a, whatchamacallit, as Escamilla. So you get one whitey in there. But when you start to incorporate uh, all the Remondados and Don Caires and Fresquitas and Mercedes, you bring the number back up again. So I was really happy about that aspect of the show. And um, Micaela's Aria Jadi. Uh, basically stops the show. It was so good. Uh, but I have to say, gatekeepers are out there, folks. And um, I got very excited after Don Jose's aria. And I, you know, I did my trademark, you know, whooping, screaming, uh, cheering. And somebody seated very near me said, come <laughs> down. You'll have to bleep. You'll have to bleep uh, that. Bleep Sorry, that one. Yeah. 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 And it just was ironic because seated right next to me on my right were this young couple. Maybe they were in their like late 30s or early 40s. I call them young. Uh, but it was clearly like one of their first experiences in opera. And the woman was very well dressed. Uh, and she was getting drunk uh, on the wine with the little cup, the sippy cups. And like <laughs> there was there was two intermissions. And so I think she had I mean, I'm not shaming her. I think she had probably five glasses of wine Whoa, while she was okay. there. And she was getting chatty and like she was pulling out her phone. She was doing all the things you're not supposed to do. Uh, and like um, asking her, you know, a companion what's going on and who is that, you know. And like I just wanted to be gracious and not shush her. Somebody did eventually shush her. But I wanted her to like feel like, you know, you spent your money. This is your evening. You're trying to have a good time. I'm not going to, you know, whatever, make you feel bad. And then here I'm the one that's getting told uh, to. Careful, to, man. That's a slippery slope. <laughs> Calm the F down. Jeez. So, uh, anyway, so my bad call is you people going out there to the opera, uh, you're ruining it for other people. <laughs> Weston Williams. That reminds me of a, of a past bad call where I was at uh, the Teatro Andovin uh, seeing a production of Fidelio. And I had a little bit of a, a little bit of a cold, and I did I had like a, I, I, I sniffed a couple of times, and then this this Austrian lady, uh, without looking back at me, pulled a single tissue out of her purse and sharply put it behind her head so I could take it and blow my nose. That's uh that's just a little PTSD for you. I have a little call for for Matt here. Uh, this is uh, a story in the New York Times about the ending of Phantom of the Opera on Broadway. It's been going for over 13,000 shows. And it makes the point that for the the or or 
uh, musicians in the pit. This is like for some the only like gig they've had to have for like years and years, which I think is so interesting. You know, what a wild specific career just to see it ending like that. And like, yeah. honestly, though, I don't really envy them because as a sometimes musician myself, I don't think I could do the same show 13,000 times in a row. But it's a fascinating little read. I'm sure we'll put it up on our website somewhere. Check it out. Bad call, daylight savings. I am still struggling. I cannot get Me myself too. onto this new time. This is just ridiculous. Good call, the national tour of the Diane Paulus production of 1776. This is not a great musical as it's written. This production is utterly brilliant. It's performed by a female or trans or non-binary cast so there are no men on stage at all it's done in absolute period costume from 1776 and none of the text is changed this is the brilliance mm. of diane paulus's directing there is nothing on that stage that i probably couldn't find in the scene shop at my local university but the way that this show is crafted and expressed moves you to tears run don't walk I will say, talking to Frank Luzzi, pal of mine, also the vice president of marketing, communications, and digital strategy at Opera Philadelphia, he said, hey, look, if your show has 30 consecutive minutes of dialogue, you're not allowed to call it a musical. That is a statement of fact. Agree completely. <laughs> and that's it for this week's edition of America's Talk radio show about opera. Make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Send us a voice memo. Email us your hot takes. Operaboxscore at gmail.com. Find links to stuff we've talked about at our website, operaboxscore.com. And hey, that's also where you're going to put your money where our mouths are. You can give back to the OBS through the donate page. Your announcer is Norm Waddell, your creative consultant, is Oliver Camacho, and your audio editor is Weston Williams. For our guest, Justine Chen, I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about opera as your arts council makes irreversible, catastrophically damaging decisions. We're back with an all-new show next week, plus you get more headlines, more hot takes, and more opera set in trailers in Las Vegas. Join us. <laughs>